0: Do you love NASCAR and all things racing? Then you've come to the right place. I'm Derek Cope. And I'm Alicia Cope. We are your hosts. And here on Race Theory, we talk about all things asphalt racing. Our life on the road, maintaining good sponsor relationships,
1: as well as balancing our work and family life as a team. Stick around,
0: and hopefully our tips and experiences will help you reach your own goals. Welcome back to Race Theory. Race Theory. Happy New Year, everyone. It's glad to have you back, and we're excited about getting on with this new year on uh, talking about uh, motorsports.
1: Welcome back, everyone. So I'm really excited about this episode because we're talking about the unsung heroes. So for those of you who are students of motorsports, and especially you are fans of the underdog, then this episode is for you. Derek is going to be going into those drivers that Probably weren't as heralded as they should have been for whatever reasons, and some very interesting characters in the heyday of the sport.
0: Well, to start, certainly I had a lot of opportunities to listen over the years early in my career uh, from Jackie Johnson, you know, who was my crew chief and personal and a dear friend. And we listened to Jackie talk of, you know, his beginnings in motorsports, which was in Campobello, South Carolina, which is Inman Spartanburg. And I would, not knowing at the time, listening to all these stories, that that would be and play a major role in my career and my life. And listening to Jackie talk about the stories and the characters and the people. were all about, you know, these drivers that were the, the drivers that did it for a living, made a living driving a race car. Maybe the guys that had a job and worked nine to five. And then in the evenings, worked on their race cars just to be able to go to the racetracks come the weekends. And it was interesting to talk and listen to, you know, to Jackie about it and just try to, you know, put myself in the shoes of, of these people and, you know, what they were going through, the work ethic the mindset of these guys, because here I was at the beginning of my career, and you know I had so much enthusiasm and, and didn't really know. I'm 3,000 miles away from Grand National Stock Car Racing and just getting my feet wet. And Jackie, here's Jackie, who has a, a wealth of knowledge because he had grown up in the South. He had worked for Budmore Engineering. He'd worked for Joe Faison. He'd worked for a number of people in racing at the Grand National level. And I just was intrigued and so fascinated by his stories and, you know, about what these people um, were up against uh, and, you know, what they had to endure and overcome being the, I guess the the group or the drivers that were, you know, maybe not in the best rides, didn't have the in the sponsorships, didn't have the the factory drives at that time from like in and Moody or didn't have the opportunity to have, you know, the best equipment. And ultimately, I think for me, you know, I was, I just wanted to know more about the sport because I really didn't have, uh, you know, that much knowledge. And I would soon get more knowledge about really the the fixtures and the chassis builders and the sport once I started driving for George Jefferson. And George had already ran back East with Harry Jefferson and had ran in his cars that he had for the Winston West series were Hutcherson and Pagan cars, Banjo Matthews cars. So those names I already knew and had a sense of who these, these people were in these cars, but they were just A chassis name for me at that point in time but later i would soon meet those people that were those chassis builders and you know for me i didn't know that it was going to happen or transpire but it was something that i still had interest in at the time and once i started running the circuit where i started going to my first ever race i actually went and carried tires for bill schmidt at ontario motor speedway in 79 Nineteen seventy nine was the year that Dale Earnhardt Sr. won rookie of the year. And Benny Parsons ended up winning the race in Ontario that day, that year that I went. So you can see that this is really in the early stages, you know, of the guys that I would ultimately be racing against and the people that would make their mark in motorsports. And at that time, there was other names there though that I I heard, and then got to witness who they were and what they were doing and the names that you know I would soon be racing against in the early 80s in the Cup Series on a limited basis and then ultimately get an opportunity to come later on in my career and race against and witness them in person uh, and maybe get to spend more time around them. And that's what happened. But names that, I don't know, some of you that if you – you know, listen to some names. I'm going to throw some names out there just, and they may not resonate with you. You may not, you know, know who they were, but I want to just go through some names and then I'll discuss more about some certain some intricacies about them, right? But you go back and you look at names like Cecil Gordon, Lenny Pond, Cuckoo Marlin. Yes, Marlin. That was Sterling Marlin's dad. Cuckoo? Cuckoo. Yeah.
1: Nice name. Nice
0: name. Roger Hamby, James Hilton. J.D. McDuffie, Ronnie Thomas, Marty Robbins. Yes. The the, real
1: Marty Robbins? The real
0: Marty Robbins. Really? Yes, El Paso. (laughs) And Jimmy Means, Buddy Arrington, uh, Frank Warren, Dave Marcus, Bobby Waywalk, D.K. Ulrich, Dick May, Richard Childress.
1: We know that one. Yes,
0: we do. And I'll go into that more detail. Charlie Glotzbach, Tommy Gale, Joe Milliken, Elmo Langley, Jody Ridley, Dick Brooks, Joe Rutman, Bragg Teague, Joe Faison, who I mentioned earlier with Jackie, H.B. Bailey. So just to name a few, uh, and there's many, many, many more that I, I don't mention, but...
1: These are ones that impacted you.
0: Well, ones that I actually spent time, I raced against, you know, maybe, you know, had opportunities to be around, you know, maybe their, their children, you know, H.B. Bailey. Uh, Joe Dan Bailey was on my team when I won Daytona. Uh, so Joe Dan now works for Toyota, but certainly somebody that, you know, uh, I knew his father, I knew how hard he worked and, and Joe Dan was right there along, on, along his side.
1: So these are not just drivers. These are also mechanics or chassis builders or involved in the sport somehow.
0: The majority of these names that I named were actually driver, driver owners that basically had their own teams and just tried to make their way in the sport. And maybe didn't win a lot of races. Uh, I think you know James Hilton only won one uh, Grand National race. I believe um, you know of course Charlie Glossback, I think won one. I think Joe Milliken won. Um, I th- you know Jody Ridley I think won. Dick Brooks won. But like kind of like micro they won one, two, or a small amount of races, right? In a very difficult you know field of uh, of race cars and race car drivers, and but they never gave up on their dream never gave up on the fact that you know this was you know somebody a way to make a living uh do what they love to do right and make an impact and uh that's 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 what they did so i i know that the stories that i've told and we did some storytelling early you know on about me you know and what i did and the races and things and you know but i remember you know going to phoenix and listening to marty robbins singing in the bar and he would He was there to drive and there to race and just to participate, be around all the racers who were his friends. And he would be in the bar singing. And
1: Felina, goodbye.
0: Felina, goodbye. (laughs) And a little cool water, big gun. And, you know, it just, there's, those are the things that I guess made such an impression on me, right? And I guess to see how much these people loved the sport, loved being around everybody and talking and, you know, just spending, you know, that quality time together and it was all because of of them in racing and you know them I guess appreciating what everyone else was going through so they had this camaraderie of you know of how hard it really was to make a living in in NASCAR at that time and then you look at the guys you know like JD McDuffie JD obviously there's a book about JD and I was at Watkins Glen when he was killed and you know when I won Daytona and a guy that had been around my career for a very long period of time was teeny Fox, Jim Fox. And of course his brother, Leon was my partner in the uh, Xfinity or the the nationwide days, right? In the Bush series. And teeny actually, when he first went back East, he gave his time to JD McDuffie and worked for JD and spent a lot of time doing things for nothing and working, going to the racetrack, helping JD and because JD was a, you know, one-man band kind of affair. And uh, Tini was very helpful and instrumental in helping him and um, just had a great relationship with him. You talk about, you know, guys that, you know, I raced against, you know, Dave Marcus and Bobby Waywalk. Um, Those were guys that I physically raced, you know, against and witnessed them and their families there at the racetrack and doing whatever it took to participate. And, Their families were there with them. And it was just, you know, they're just fond memories I have of seeing how committed they were as a collective group, you know, with their families. And the guys that we talk about that maybe we're looking at it from a different perspective and more so what it is now, right? So you could draw some correlation from the people that are doing arrive and driving scenarios, sort of like where they're putting drivers in their car that are paid, right? And that's how they fund their programs. And the Roger the Ham- driver
1: pays for the ride. The driver
0: pays for the not, ride. Not
1: the driver is paid. That is right. correct.
0: So basically, back then, guys that were doing that was Roger Hamby, who was a driver at one time, and then you know went to the side of, of putting drivers in his car and getting and getting paid from them. Uh, James Hilton was the same way. Jimmy Means did the same thing.
1: Yeah. Well, Jimmy Means ran a Xfinity Nationwide program when we were doing it.
0: I actually drove for Jimmy. Uh, In the uh, Xfinity series. So, uh, and then there was DK Ulrich. And DK Ulrich was this rather flamboyant guy, had uh, some other businesses. I think he owned some things in the islands and and what, and had an airplane. Uh, Very interesting character, uh, and was putting drivers that were paying for their rides in the cars. And he was kind of like probably the guy that was really kind of starting that to the magnitude that it was. I remember Trevor Boys from Canada. Uh, he came and he drove for James Hilton. He drove for Roger Hamby some, I believe, as well. But, you know, a lot of the guys that kind of got their start in racing, like the, the Kenny Schraders and, you know, the um, Dick Brooks and the Jody Ridleys, those guys would start and drive for some of these guys and, you know, get the opportunity to showcase their potential. Eddie a Whale, Uh, names that I raced against and that were stable fixtures for a period of time. And these guys were making a living doing it that way.
1: And I think it's um, interesting to note to our listeners too, is that These drivers, and especially someone like James Hilton, they were very talented in their own right. They certainly could have driven their own car, but they had to put drivers in their car to make the money if they didn't have sponsorship or they didn't have backing or they didn't have family money. And that's a place where we found ourselves in many times as well, is that we, you wanted to drive, and I'm sure James would have loved to have kept his own butt in the seat, but you get relegated to, if you want to survive in the sport, you do need to have money, and that is an easy way to get it.
0: Unfortunately, things run their courses sometimes, you know, and sometimes timing is, you know, a motivating factor into doing something different than you getting ultimately to do what you want to do. And I'm sure that they succumbed to those situations. And one of magnitude that you would know and wouldn't really realize was Richard Childress. Yep. I mean, Richard drove his own cars, was an independent driver and was struggling to make ends meet. Talented guy, but didn't have the right backing, didn't really have all the right things happening at that point in time for him as a driver. And then ultimately, one thing happens. I mean, one change in direction. And I think R.J. Reynolds was instrumental in you know making this happen. And I forget who all was you know involved with it, but it, it brought Dale Earnhardt Sr. to Richard Childress and Richard got out of the car and put senior in. And that ultimately was the best decision that Richard Childress ever made. And what does he do? He turns it into an empire. And to this day, he, he basically, you know, obviously made the right choices in racing. And, you know, it is one of those stories that, you know, is basically the, you know. One decision made all the difference. Made all the difference, Right. And, but guys that are still in it, I mean, Jimmy Means still is in racing and, you know, still doing what he loves to do and putting drivers in the car to help fund his efforts. Buddy Arrington was somebody I met when I first came back here and raced against, and he was the sole Chrysler guy at the time, you know. And, you know, it's funny, you know, Joey Arrington, his son, later on goes on to do engine building, and he is one of the main guys with Dodge and ends up, you know, in the, basically the beginning of Dodge is coming back to racing, into racing and doing very instrumental and doing a lot of the engine development, uh, in that. And then that would lead into Ray Everham, uh, doing it as well. But, you know, um, I remember that because Buddy was an older guy that I got to race, got to watch race at Riverside and then got to spend racing with him and then got to know him and actually visited him at his shops, uh, up in uh, Virginia. And so, uh, those are the things that was, I think really exciting for me was that I got to meet all these people and then I would ultimately get the opportunities to go to their shops and see, you know, what they were doing, how they were doing things in the sport itself. And, you know, it's, you know, James Hilton, probably, you know, if you look back at when I think of our early storytelling, I was talking about my trip, you know, back East and how I came down the mountain from Hendersonville, North Carolina into down into Landham, down into Campobello. And didn't know it at the time, but that was just Jackie's birthplace. And we set up shop there in Leroy Mabry's shop in Campobello. And if you go back and listen to some of the early, you know, storytelling, you'll, you'll hear some of the things about that, but that just further, you know, in towards Spartanburg was a little town called Inman and Inman was where James Hilton resided and where his race shop was at.
1: Yes, I've been there.
0: Yeah. And so that is where I got my first introduction to James and spent time at his shop and getting to know James and, um, you know, befriended him. And, you know, of course, Jack and him were friends and, and Leroy and him were friends. And so it was just this camaraderie where we'd go to the fish camp and have my first introduction to sweet tea and South Carolina sweet tea and, you know, hanging out with. With James and listened to all the stories, more stories, which you know, I loved. And of course, Jackie drove for Bud Moore, and in Spartanburg was where Bud Moore Engineering was at, which was the 15 car in the Cup Series that had won all these Cup Series races, and you know where Bobby Allison and you know all these guys had driven. So um, James was a very unique individual and a dear friend of ours, and you know Alicia, when we were. You know, spending time together here, we went down. After I took her down to, well, you can tell the story a little bit. Uh, you, we were up in uh, Chimney Rock, right?
1: We were at, at the Grove, the Omni Grove Omni Park Grove for Park my Inn. birthday. Right. And we weren't married yet. In fact, I kind of expected a proposal that birthday, but I didn't get it. Hmm. Just didn't <laughs> buy that much. <laughs> I got it a little bit later. Um, but anyway, we... Um, we were tri- traveling back home and there was a fork in the road and the sign said um, South Carolina, something South Carolina. And I said, oh, how far is South Carolina from here? And you said, parked right up and said, not very far. In fact, do you want to go see where I first started racing and meet some of my friends? And I said, absolutely, let's go. And so, um, I mean, this was wintertime, so it was off season, it was cold. And we went down the pass and, and drove into James's place first. And we walked into his shop, and he was there, and and uh, he was just the most likable, the cutest guy. And he loved he loved talking about stories, but he also liked talking about you and and how he met you. And he pointed out all of the pictures and all of the trophies. And I remember thinking then that he has a very similar, al- although you know, much older, he has a, a similar story to you where he had to pull his bootstraps up and, and make something of himself every series he went to. He, he never had the big backing. He never had a high echelon ride. He always was kind of the driver-owner situation. But he won in practically every series he was in, I believe. Um, I remember him showing me the ARCA um, and the, the Bush series at the time. And, and you said he won at the cup level as well,
0: right? He won a race, right? Yeah. In the Grand National, in the Grand National Division. But at the time, James really did um, run up front some and was a, you know, I mean, a viable entity and, you know, had, had a lot of respect in the sport. And then, you know, just timing and, and the things, you know, the progression of money coming in and he wasn't able to really, you know continued the path of having the quality equipment, you know, to to stay competitive, you know. So then he made those decisions, as we often all have to, to make choices of, you know, getting out of the car or running ARCA and doing some other things to make a living. And, you know, he had a, a small shop that was in Inman, and he had a trailer outside there and he lived in. And, you know. Yeah, I
1: remember I was really scared about that little trailer because he used, he would turn on the uh, propane... <laughs> Stovetop in that tiny little trailer for his heat, and I remember walking in there thinking, wouldn't after we initially met, then we would go down and and just check on him from time to time, and he would be sitting in there with that gas going, and I was thinking to myself, my gosh, you're going to blow yourself up, James. But he, it was a very sad day when he was killed um, prematurely coming back from Talladega. That was that was a a shock and. And, uh, definitely motorsports lost, a an icon, a a legend.
0: This is true. I think for me, you know, those were some of the great times that, you know, and I really wouldn't realize how great they were, you know, but coming down that mountain, you know, I really was just starting my career path and the sense of just coming to the South, the deep South where grand national stock car racing really started. And for me to be trying to get a foothold at that time, the things that would be unbeknownst to me was the things that would come my way by this migration to the deep South. And you know that whole area there, you know, was just, it had uh, so many people and race car drivers and stories. I would meet cotton Owens who was, you know, a hall of famer, you know, who was from that area, David Pearson, and knowing his sons, and would race against his sons. Isn't that
1: your favorite driver?
0: Well, uh, not my really favorite driver, I would say from a personal standpoint, but probably from a standpoint of the most respected as far as his capabilities and running limited schedules and winning races. His way of driving the car, yeah, I think probably one of the the ultimate greats in the sport, along with Richard, obviously and Petty. But uh, you know, that was the rival was Richard Petty and and uh, and. Uh,
1: if David Pearson David would have Pearson. been able to drive full time he could have really stacked up the wins is what you're saying i think i it remember- was his
0: choice i think to run limited schedules uh, i think he 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 chose that for the most part he did run a lot of you know some you know full schedules drove for the wood brothers with Pure Later. so that's how with marvin panch i was i was kind of the third driver in the rung you know marvin panch was one of the first Pure Later drivers and you know I mean, this guy's, you know, of magnitude. And then there was David Pearson and then myself driving the Purolator car. So I had this enormous respect and, and admiration for these individuals, obviously met them all, raced against David, but knew Marvin and and spoke to Marvin and, you know, and had opportunities to, to talk to him about, you know, Purolator and and their involvement. And, you know, those are the things that if you... Th- you know, here's a young guy, a young guy that's trying to make his way in the sport and has all this at his disposal. And you're trying to take it all in and you're trying to just, you know, you're seeing the greats of the sport you're seeing and meeting all of these other guys, the unsung heroes, you know, that you've been hearing about, you've watched, you've raced against, but you're, you're seeing what they're going through. You're understanding what it takes and you're gaining enormous respect for, Everyone in the sport, and that it takes everyone to put on a NASCAR race. And you just start to understand really what it's all about. And, you know, and to this day, I mean, I have enormous respect for Jimmy Means and, you know, uh, you know, Dave Marcus, who was the true epitome of an independent, you know, who did it all. I mean, you know, wore wingtips to the day it was done, you know, to drive the race car. And, you know, those... Wore
1: wingtips in the race car?
0: Yes. That's what his driving shoes were. So... Huh. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's... And then Elmo Langley, I mentioned Elmo. Well, Elmo was, you know, his own crew chief, his own driver was a crew chief. And when I first got the first sponsorship from Later in 1980, the winter of 87 going on for the 88 season, he was the crew chief that I drove for with Jim Testa. He actually owned all that equipment that Testa bought from him and he was the crew chief. So I got to know Elmo really well. And Elmo ended up being the pace car driver for NASCAR later on in years after I had left there and gone on to Whitcomb's and other places. So Elmo was always around. So, you create relationships with these guys. You, you know, you're a part of their history, you get to know them, and the storytelling never ends. And you listen to their peril, you listen to their disappointments, you can sense and when they conveyed to you how they were doing it and what you were going through, you get a real sense of of what it took and you know, the commitment they had, and I mean the determination they had. And that's where you gain the respect from those people, not at what they, how many races they won or what they did, but what they were doing and. Well, what it took for them to stay in the sport. Absolutely. Yeah, it was, it was an incredible time from there. You know, that whole area, I, when I went back there in 87, just prior to me going with Elmo, Bob Edwards was a crew chief for the Stoke racing team that I came from California with after I left Warren Rosori. Well, we were in Hendersonville, North Carolina, just up the road from Campobello and Landrum, you know, where Leroy's at in Landrum up into Hendersonville. And that's where I would meet a lot of, you know, great friends like John Pace from Pace Construction, you know, and uh, George Bradshaw, who was part of the TriStar Racing Team with, you know, Dave Fuge and Mark Smith. And then I got to meet Banjo Matthews and his son, Jody, and for those of you that know about the sport, you know, Banjo Matthews, it was, you know, it was Banjo's performance center. He was one of the main chassis builders. 1964, you know, before when these they used to called stock car racing, it was actual stock cars and it was unibody cars. 64, Banjo created the first, you know, um, he had like a, uh, a stock box car. Holman Moody, I think, built the first um, stock box car, but ultimately, um, you know, Banjo was one of those guys that was, you know, building race cars. So it was, and I had drove for a Banjo car for George Jefferson. And so I got to finally meet Banjo Matthews, who I had driven the car, the one car that I had wrecked out there. Then I tore up the Fairmont and then we went to the old uh, car that was in the field that was supposed to be the best Mm -hmm. thing I'd ever driven. That was a Hutcherson Pagan (laughs) car. So you just, you start to put names, right. And faces with the names, you know, of these cars that you had driven and, and started, you know, the infancy of your career. And, and so it was interesting to me, you know, and then ultimately, you know, I would migrate to Charlotte. And when I drove for and I went to Bob Whitcomb Racing. We were in the old Die building, which was on old Dowd Road behind the Charlotte, uh, airport. And this building was where the Gatorade Die Guard racing team that Daryl Waltrip drove. That was the building. And it was just down the road from the infamous Holman and Moody, which was like a 75,000 square foot factory in the early days of motorsports that really was basically the first real factory chassis building entity. And, you know, John Holman, who was from California and was working out there, and then came to Charlotte and started the foot, it was a factory Ford effort. And they would build the first real stock box car and create a factory with a guy named Ralph Moody, who was a driver. And when I came back here, you know, they would go on to buy his stock out and, you know, he would be not in Holman Moody when I met him, but I got to know Ralph Moody and befriended him. And he would spend a lot of time talking to me and, uh, he was the Moody and Holman and Moody. So, you know, I got to meet, the guys that, you know, you heard so much about and were so instrumental in winning all these races. And, you know, if you put in perspective what these guys have done, you know, I mean, it's it's remarkable, you know, that you got to, that I personally got to meet these people that really made the sport what it was. And I don't think there's a, you know, a, you know, a lot of people that really had really that opportunity. And for me, um, it was one that I, I felt, you know, so good about. And
1: well, and I think and I know a lot of people and especially these listeners probably agree that the ignorant race fan, and I say that, yes, I do, the ignorant race fan just looks at the statistics, the black and white, how many races they won. And a lot of times the question always comes up, well is any is he any good or is she any good? And they look at the career starts and finishes and, you know, like a quarterback rating on paper. But that does not tell the story. These guys had history treated them a little bit differently. Had they been with the big rides? Had they gotten to drive for Richard Childress? Had they gotten a big, huge sponsor? You know, things could have been very different for them. But as being independents and them wanting to stay in the sport, they had to rely on themselves. And of course, it didn't Permit them to have very many wins. And I think it is wonderful to actually bring these names back up that might just be lost in history because probably not much was ever written about them, article wise, not spoken about on the news um, or in, um, you know, from the commentators. But, you know, just like how, you know, the networks only pay attention to the top 10 guys that are running around the track today, there's a lot of battling that's going on in the back from the mid pack to the back. And it's always been that way. But especially back in these days when you actually had to build your own car and get yourself to the racetrack and crew it yourself, these stories and these names, they really should, you know, reside in, you know, the annals of, of motorsports as the unsung heroes. And I'm glad that you're bringing it out.
0: It was something I you know I felt compelled to do. I really wanted to talk a little bit. It's a new year, right? And, you know, I wanted to start off with some things and just Kind of take us back in time a little bit. And, you know, guys like Jimmy Means, you know, he, you know, always was, you know, maybe not in the best equipment, his own equipment, trying to make things go. But he got an opportunity to drive for Rick Hendrick in the Folgers car and did a really good job in the car. And I think it just showed me then that, you know, again, that proves that in quality equipment, you know, you are capable of performing at higher levels and you're only as good as the people you have working for you and the equipment you're sitting in. Absolutely. And I think we're all You know, a lot, and a lot of these names that I've mentioned here, among many others that I didn't mention, uh, you know, names that I didn't know personally, or didn't really get an opportunity to know or spend time with, but a lot of these guys I did, you know, I mean, the Ken Reagans, you know, you know, David Reagan's father and, uh, got to know these guys and spent time with them, you know, and, uh, you know, the names of guys that maybe like Eddie Beardish and, and, you know, Trevor boys, all those guys that kept trying and, you know, trying to pave their way. Right. You know, so, um, Yeah it's just, it was important for me to like, to touch base with those guys, you know, and then it wasn't all just the drivers and those guys too. I mean, I remember, you know, getting to meet guys that were crew chiefs that, you know, were, they befriended me. They spent time talking to me, you know, uh, a guy named Boobie Harrington, you know, he was a crew chief for Joe Ruttman. And I don't know if you guys know the name Robin McCall, but she was a, a woman in racing back in, you know, the early days. And I think 81, maybe through 85 in that range. I think she was in there around 82, if I remember right. But it's Wally Dollenbach's wife. And Robin was a very, very talented um, racer and probably could have made a, a living doing this. And then, you know, ultimately made different choices. But Booby was, uh, you know, the... You know, he was a crew chief for him and, you know, Jim Sauter, a good friend of mine who, uh, you know, Johnny Sauter drove for us in the Xfinity series some, and, and, uh, he, you know, Jim and I were, you know, really good friends. I enjoyed being around him. He did a lot of the development work for the iRock series with Dave Marcus and, you know, uh, you know, it was, he was a neat guy and spent a lot of time and, you know, I enjoyed, you know, knowing him and then parking all. Parky Knoll, the name came to me because of George Jefferson. He was doing engines for George Jefferson in the beginning before I took him over and started doing the rebuilds. And Parky was from, uh, I think, from, from California and then moved back here. And then ultimately, uh, you know, yeah, I think he'd worked for the Hornadays. He'd done motors for George and um, he moved out here. And I think he his shop was close to Hutcherson and Pagan. And I actually got to to meet Parky, go to his shop, and get to know him because I had purchased parts and pieces and built a lot of the motors and redone them that he had done for for George, you know. So, uh, and that's how I ended up meeting uh, Dick Hutcherson and uh, Ron Hutcherson of the Hutcherson and Pagan who built those race cars and the chassis that I drove for George. So here I am, uh, you know, I'm getting to do all these things and put again the the names and, and the faces you know, together with what chassis I drove and who they are and and got to know these guys, you know, and you know, I mean Dick Hutcherson, he was a crew chief. I mean, he won a championship with David Pearson, you know, as a crew chief. I mean, these are guys that and he was a great race car driver and Hall of Famer. And, you know, and so I mean, it wasn't until, you know, I spent a, and I actually, you know, I've known Waddell Wilson for a long time, you know, and I got to, you know, drive for um, Larry Hedrick when Waddell was doing motors up there and then got to know, I mean, obviously, my first ever race that Jackie and I went to was when I, we won the Late Model Sportsman Championship. We went to Daytona from, you know, a gift for winning the championship in 1983 to Daytona. And that was the year that uh, Cale Yarbrough set the record over 200 miles an hour and then flipped the car on his second lap of qualifying. And... That's when Waddell and I started talking about that year, and he told me the inner things that all transpired there about the backup car being a show car, out being in the middle of Daytona somewhere, and they had to go get that car and rebuild it and come back. And so, you listen to all these things, and then you, you know, obviously, you knew that you know Waddell was with 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 Home and Moody, but that was his background. He started at Home and Moody building engines. And you know, Homann and Moody, you know, used to build a lot of engines for the Cup Series. Ground all the camshafts for Leonard Wood, who obviously you know Leonard. And Leonard has been a dear friend of ours, and uh, I love Leonard to death. And just to, you know, have the relationships. And you know, when you go to the racetrack and you see Leonard and you see Dale Enman and Richard, you just love having the relationships because you've been a part of the sport, you know, in this capacity, and. For me that that's what's made this sport special for me
1: absolutely, and I just I have to say, I adore Waddell, he is just the sweetest little sweetheart he He would actually um, stop alongside the road and pick flowers for myself and my assistant um, when he would come in and uh, check your gears and and uh, we did a couple. Um, Kind of like infomercial commercials with our production company one time about the hair, the best hair in the garage in the 80s. And and he he was so funny. He's never gonna uh, be an actor, but but uh he he's uh got a lot of respect from a lot of people and uh he will be a Hall of Famer if he's not already he is he, he is, is yeah. in the Hall of Famer, yeah. He he has done so much in the sport and he's one of those guys that never wanted to retire from it. He would go do a lowly job to make sure that he stayed in the circle and continued to be able to go to the race shops and and go to the tracks and do what he loves to do.
0: Yes. Waddell, I mean, a unique individual and just a wonderful man. And we just, you know, we love him to death. And, you know, I I will get Waddell to come on our show as a guest because he will bring such a broad perspective of the sport new and old. And he's been there early in this deal. He has so many stories from the early days and what transpired and won championships, Daytona 500s with Cale Yarborough and all these guys, right? And he... Parsons, right? um, uh, Actually, I don't remember all the guys that he drove for. He could tell you. And we'll we'll get him on so he can tell you. But he's, (laughs) I mean, countless people, right? Uh, But he's had them all, I think. And you know just you know, his, his perspective of, of what went on and, you know, how he saw it and how he viewed it and the obstacles that they had to go through and overcome and how they had to deal with NASCAR and Bill France and, you know, and, you know, the, the rules, because they you know, the, the whole thing about that day and age was to still be stimulated and to find horsepower, find a way to make more and make the car faster and do all these things, and. Maybe, you know, do something a little bit different and that maybe were, you know, that nobody else was thinking about. And then it was, it was the job of, of Bill France in junior or Bill France and them to make, to keep the parody and what they would call the BOP, which would be like, you know, what they call that now is the balance of performance, right? So they would make changes and Take things from you and give to somebody else just to keep the racing closer, and make things better. But it was always guys like Waddell and those guys that would find ways to make more power, be innovative, and to listen to those stories um, and where how it's how it's changed racing. Uh, and you know, in his perspective, I think you'll enjoy. And I will. I'll make a point of trying to get that done here in the near future because he is truly a remarkable individual that we need to to listen to. Uh, you'll enjoy 45 minutes of him talking stories. I know I will, and I've heard a lot of them. So uh, we'll do that. But, you know, it really is, you know, y- you talk about all these things that we've talked about today, and it really is about perspective. And it really is about, I think, you know, having respect for everyone that participates in a particular sport or the way that you know in our sport primarily right you have to have respect for everybody that's doing it in some way shape or form because they all have unique obstacles and they all have unique talents and they bring something a dynamic to the sport that you know i think not everybody brings the same thing and it ultimately takes so much and you know not all of us you know we've all had maybe had some success, or maybe some modest success. And, you know, it really just, I think, speaks volumes that there's a lot of great, talented people there that don't get all the opportunities to, to do it. And there's so many race car drivers out there. And I think a prime example, even for today, is a guy like Josh Berry, who's driving for Dale Earnhardt Jr., right? Guy that's, he was mired in the, in the short tracks and the late models for so long. And then gets an opportunity, and junior gives him an opportunity to showcase what he can do, and look at him—he's thriving now in the sport and is a stable fixture. So it either gives hope uh, that you know it can happen even late in life, like for Josh, and I think for all these young guys that you know maybe the guys that are still out there fighting the good fight, you know, at the local levels, uh, that a guy like this gives them you know, the, the continued desire and belief in themselves that you just have to be at the right time, right place, you know, somebody watching you at the right time, you saying the right thing, like it was for us in Tacoma Shucks Grand Prix with Carol Warner from Pure Later. You don't know who's listening, you don't know who's there, and you don't know when it's going to happen. But ultimately, that opportunity can and will happen possibly. So you have to be prepared for it. And you have
1: to to be consistent. You do. You can't just dabble here and there. If this is something that is your dream, this is where you want to go and you're willing to fight for it and you're willing to not make the most money for it. Maybe you could make a living doing something else, make a lot more money doing something else, but this is what you want to do. Consistency is key. You have to be there week after week, day after day. It has to be something that you do every single day.
0: Ray Everham told me a long time ago that, this sport is out of sight out of mind it certainly is and i believe that you know that to the truest you know extent of the word if you're not there and you're not a part of it and you're not trying to you know to be seen and be heard and just you know driving that consistent message you know it's just like marketing right you're, you the key is to drive a consistent message you know year after year week after week month after month same thing in racing you have to keep fighting the good fight. So if you're out there and you're, you know, you've got your kids that are doing it, you've got, you know, kids that you're mentoring, you've got your own race team, you've got, you know, friends that are doing it, you know, the support. And I think reiterating to them, you know, that you have to have the determination and you have to have the consistency and keep doing what you're doing and believe in what you're in your path and believe and have desire. And keep the work ethic. Just, you know, don't get outworked. We always say that, and my dad always said it. Just don't get outworked. Just continue to put the effort in. And I think it's true, so true in so many other things that are not racing related, right? But you really do have to put the work in, and it just it's not going to just happen. And you know, I think you put yourself in a lot better position if you are out there pounding the pavement, talking the talk, and walking the walk. And that's what. That's what we try to do. That's why we try to live our lives. And like you said, you don't have to make the most money. Certainly money is a motivating factor, you know, notoriety, whatever it is in the beginning that drives you towards your path. But ultimately, I always said the passion has to be there because everything else fades. And, you know, sometimes, you know, if you have true passion for something, it doesn't leave you. It's something that you wake up in the morning and you'll do whatever it takes. And I don't care if you know it's sweeping the floors at a place to start and get your foot in the door. We've had young guys come and work for us, couldn't pay them. They put their time in. They gave of themselves to at least have a ticket to the dance. Let me get on the dance floor. And I've always used that adage because it's so true. And get an opportunity for people to see you and you see your face And that starts to resonate with them and they think, well, this guy is, you know, he's a committed guy and that's what it takes. And these, all these guys here, I've mentioned here and the guys that I've named its because I saw them. They were consistently there. They were always fighting the good fight. And we spent time with those people. We got to know those people. And I still have enormous respect for those people. And I think, I think most of the people that were in the sport at this time, you know, they have respect for them too. Even the guys that maybe had more success. That's why guys like Richard Childress help other people in the sport when they were down on their luck or they needed something, you know, guys like him and other people, they would support those guys, give them used parts, used pieces, help build a motor, do whatever they could could do because they have been in their shoes before. And I think that speaks volumes and, you know, I think, for me, that's what I love about this sport, and that's what has driven me this whole period of time and continues to do it to this very day. So, with that, I want to thank you for listening, and the start of the new year, racing is a number of weeks away to get rolling. I know that uh, Daytona, you know, the, the road Racing Series and IMSA starts soon, and racing, there'll be a lot to talk about, a lot to talk about, and we're going to get started with it here in our next episode. So thanks for listening uh, here on race theory and we'll listen. We'll hear you uh, next time.
1: Have a great week, everyone.
0: Thank you so much for listening.
1: Did this episode give you some value? If so, please follow us on Facebook at Derek Cope and Instagram at Derek Cope double zero and leave a comment or question and use hashtag race theory.
0: We can't wait to hear from you. See you on the next
1: episode.